Our call to worship this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 15, and is the first ten verses. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Our opening hymn of worship this morning is on the sheet and will also appear on the screen. God is love, his the care, tending each everywhere. And if you're able and would like to, you're invited to stand as we sing.
And so we will come to God in our opening prayers. I will lead us in a prayer. And after that, we are all invited to join together in the words of the prayer that Jesus taught his followers, the Lord's Prayer, and to say that in our own first language and in whichever version is the most natural for us. If you're not sure of the words, which is fine, a version will appear on the screen. So let's come to God in prayer together. Let us pray. God, who reveals yourself to us in beauty, we give you praise for the wonder of all the things that bring us delight. From the intricate patterns on a butterfly's wings to the simple elegance of tall pine trees. From the feel of the warm sun on our faces to the breathtaking chill of plunging into the sea. From the sweetness of strawberries to the saltiness of potato crisps and the acidity of lemons. From the sharp, jaggy prickles of a thistle to the soft, silky fur of a rabbit. From the complex harmonies of a symphony to the toddler singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. From the smell of freshly baked bread to barbecues. From newly mown grass to roses. God, who reveals yourself to us in truth, we recognise that we do not always manage to live truthfully. Forgive us for the half-truths we have employed to excuse our actions or attitudes. Forgive us for the half-truths with which we have colluded because it's convenient. Forgive us the lies that we tell ourselves that deny our own or others' humanity. Forgive us the lies we fail to challenge because to do so feels too costly. Forgive us for the truths we know and fail to express. Forgive us from the truth we speak carelessly or judgmentally. God, who reveals yourself to us in love, we come to you now seeking to be embraced in that love. A love that bears all things, forgives all things, restores all things that keeps no record of wrongs, but actively forgets the wrong that is past, that accepts us, renews us, refreshes us, enlivens us, that empowers and equips us to love each other as we anticipate your inbreaking kingdom, for which we now pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. The thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. A very long time ago, when I was learning how to be a minister, we used to get sent out from college to go to all sorts of churches. And I was sent out to a church who had sent me their order of service, which was always a good thing to get the order of service. And it said, children's talk. So I dutifully prepared something, and I got there, and the youngest person in the congregation was about 70. And somebody came up to me afterwards and said, yeah, but... We like that bit. We understand it. (laughs) It's not the children's talk. We have worked really, really hard over the time I've been here to move away from the idea that this is the bit for the kids and then we have the proper grown-up bit later. It's all part of our worship together. There are times when it's better to do things in an age-appropriate fashion, but there are also times when it's great to be together. That's why we call it Starting All Together, because that's what we're doing. 
And I had prepared this before I knew there weren't going to be very few children today, so that's fine. And I was going to ask a very simple question, and because we're all grown-ups, I'm going to ask you to answer it with two or three people around you, and I will time it so we don't still be here discussing it at 12. Have you got a favourite Bible verse or story that perhaps you hold on to when life's a bit tough or a bit tricky? Or just, if not one that you hold on at those times, just one that you really like, and why that might be. So just for about... 90 seconds, two or three people around you, have you got a favourite Bible story and why is it your favourite Bible story? Or a verse or a book or whatever. Okay, um, obviously great buzz of conversation going on there, and I even heard some, some really good laughter, so that's good. Um, is anybody feeling really, really brave and able to say just very briefly uh, what their favourite is and why? I guarantee that silences everybody, can't you? We're all slightly... Thank you. Yeah. Hi, John. I'm just going to get the microphone so they can hear you rather than me. Sure. So yeah, I would say I'm I'm going through a very difficult time at present. But um, when I do, um, I always think about Job and all the difficult things that he went through. But it was quite amazing that despite everything that happened to him, he would continue to pray. He continued to seek God in spite of that. So regardless of where you are in your position in life, I'm not expecting to be given you know everything twice as more as he got at the end. That'd be great. But um, I think it's important that, you know, I don't deserve his grace, but he's given it to me and I'll continue to pray and pray for others as well and, and see where the Lord takes me. Thank you. So double points for John for being a visitor and being brave and having a really, oh, actually triple points because you had a really good uh, verse and reason. Anybody else feeling really brave? Because, you know, the ice is bit, thank you, Anne. I'll come to Anne and then to Ian. Since Miss Allen isn't here, I'm not frightened to try and quote scripture. Um, there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, uh, and that's one of my favourites too, so thank you for that one. Ian. Um, I can't remember the exact verse, but uh, where uh, Peter responds to Jesus when he said, will you also you know, leave me? And he said, well, where else can we go? You've got the word of life. And I always look at that and think, well, you know, where else is there any real sense in the world except in him? Fantastic. Is that somebody else? Oh, Jeff's desperate to have one. Good. Yes, it was exactly as Anne, that same passage from Romans 8. Okay. Okay, thank you very much, uh, brave people, and thank you everybody else who shared in ones or twos. I think it's good that we have, doesn't matter if you can't remember chapter and verse, because chapters and verses are actually a human invention. They weren't there in the original script. And it always um, encourages me that both Paul and Jesus say, well, it says somewhere that. And if it's good enough for Paul and Jesus, it's sure good enough for me. But great to have these verses to hold on to. Now, I have to warn you, I'm going to tell you a joke, and I know I don't tell jokes, and I know my timing's terrible, but we're going to have another attempt at a joke today. Jesus met with some theologians, and he said to them, who do you say that I am? They replied, you, 
are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being, the charisma of which we find the ultimate meaning in our interpersonal relationships. And Jesus said, what? (laughs) Nearly worked. (laughs) There's a great, uh, was a great theologian called Karl Barth, wrote incredibly long, complicated books in German. German. Um, He taught, I believe, in the States for a while. And I've checked out that this really did happen. I actually found somebody who researched it to confirm that it happened. Somebody actually said to him, how do you sum up all your theology? All these books you've written, all this stuff, how do you sum it up? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Doesn't matter how clever we are, doesn't matter how much we think we've got it worked out, that's what we come back to. And that was what was very evident in all of those things we shared, whether it was Job in his difficulties, whether it was Peter who said, well, you know, there is just nobody else, nothing else that can help us make sense of life, or the letter to Romans that reminds us that nothing ever can separate us from God's love in Jesus Christ. All of that seems to me pretty much the same. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We're going to sing it to a Gallic tune, so it's slightly different from the one that I grew up with, but that's a deliberate choice to try and actually get into the meaning rather than a bit of singy-songy nonsense. Thanks, Paul.
from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 11 to 17. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I have learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. The next reading is Second John, and it's the whole passage. The Elder. To the chosen lady and her children, in whom I love, the, in whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also to all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings.
Among the little books under one page that we find in the New Testament are two of the three letters attributed to John and usually accepted as having been written by the same person or at least a close follower of the same person who also wrote the Gospel of John and the book that we usually refer to as Revelation. Whilst preaching on the Gospel and on some parts of Revelation anyway is quite widespread, it's rare indeed to hear a sermon on the first letter of John and almost unheard of for anybody to preach on second or third John. In fact, these two very short letters don't even make it into the Revised Common Lectionary or many of the other reading or preaching schemes. Unless you're doing a read through the Bible, you probably won't ever be asked to read them. Which does make you wonder, doesn't it, why are they in the Bible if nobody even bothers with them? So in preparing for this sermon, I read the little letter several times, along with some detailed commentaries on it. But I also took a bit of time to find what scholars believe about the background, both to the gospel and the letters, and that really helped me begin to make sense of what is said and why it's said. And I think it's helpful for us to hear that as we try to think what either of these letters may have to say to us. Today we're focusing on 2 John, and in a few weeks' time, when we come back to finish this series, we will look at 3 John. But I think the overview is as important as the detail. The concept of a Jehanine community, or a school of believers in Jesus, centred around the beloved disciple, generally accepted to be John, is widely established. The fourth gospel, with its clear evidence of Greek influence and arguably arguably the most overtly developed Christology of the four, is understood to have emerged from within that context. And there were almost certainly two editions of the gospel, one published during his lifetime and the second, the one we have today, with some material added on after his death. And although that can't be proved it does make a lot of sense. So if there was a Johannine community, or perhaps in modern-day parlance, a church or a group of churches centering around this version of the gospel, what might it have looked like? As I read the various commentaries, there seemed to be a consensus of opinion based on the gospel itself and on the three associated letters that this was actually a broad church with a wide range of theological understandings coexisting, at least in the early days. It's quite possible it was formed of several what we might call house churches in and around Ephesus, and the believers generally fell into one of three groups. Centrally, there were those who were totally committed to the apostolic gospel as they had received it. Then there were some who came from Jewish backgrounds, who leaned towards an understanding of Jesus as completely human and retained a strong emphasis on the law or Torah in working out what it meant to follow him. And thirdly, there were others from agnostic or similar background who leaned towards an understanding of Jesus as completely divine and for whom any earthly matters, including ethics and lifestyle, had little or no consequence. 
The evidence of 1 John particularly, but also the gospel itself, suggests a desire to hold the tension between these different understandings creatively, with what the scholars tend to refer to as a balanced Christology, giving equal weight to the human and divine aspects of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ of God. I like this hypothesis very much, and I like it for many reasons. I like it because it seems to have an inherent provisionality, acknowledging that the outliers have as much to offer as the centre, and that nobody has a monopoly on the truth or understanding. I like it because it means in this particular expression of the early church, there was a sense of unity and diversity that I would want to aspire to. And I guess I like it because it feels a little bit like this church, in which we're all trying to follow Jesus. Everybody is in some way committed to the Jesus story as one we choose to live by. And nobody here claims to have it all neatly sewn up. And yet, you know what? Most of the time, we all seem to get on reasonably well together. That seems to me a good thing. And that seems to be the kind of church that the early Johannine believers held together. But there was a fourth group in this community. Well, actually, they weren't in the group. That's the point. They'd left it. And these are the ones who seem to be referred to as the false teachers. These weren't people, it seems, who were just misunderstood what the gospel said, or people whose views were extremely to one end or low, or the other end, a high or very high or very low Christology than that generally accepted in the community. These were people who had rejected the challenge of a diverse community in favour of one that was uniform. You know, the one that's the way I understand it. That's how church should be. And if that wasn't enough, they seem to have gone around disturbing and infiltrating the other little local expressions of the church with their views, creating tension and dissension among those they met. I guess we've all met people a bit like that as well (laughs) along the way. I can't prove any of that. It's my understanding of the thoughts of a number of scholars. But I would like to suggest it's a helpful way to approach the letter, a way that offers us insights into some of the key aspects of what it means to be an authentic church, and maybe also what we need to avoid giving house room to so that we don't lose the unique and precious calling that we believe has been entrusted to us by God. It seems to me that there are three key words or concepts in this letter which echo those in the gospel and specifically in those parts of the gospel called the farewell discourses in John chapters 14 to 17 and we've heard part of that read for us today. The first word is abide or remain. A word that expresses a wide range of equally valid understandings. Abide, linked etymologically to abode, carries a sense of home. That the true home of those who follow Christ is within the community of believers, which of course mysteriously is the earthly expression of Christ's body. The vine imagery of John 15 offers another way of expressing this interconnectedness and interdependence. 
No one can survive, let alone thrive, separate from the vine. Each branch derives its essential nutrition from the same source. I vaguely recall somebody here who was coming for me at one point preached on the idea of abiding in Christ as something inherently restful, a kind of non-striving, non-anxious, or at least less striving and less anxious way of being, centred not on works, but on grace. If home is a place that we feel safe and secure, it's also a place in which we are free to be and not simply to do. The alternative word remain with its sense of staying put, of being here and accepting that this is the place where we are meant to be, can also carry a sense of home with it. When a person who grows up in Scotland says, where do you stay? That question means the same thing as someone who grew up where I grew up says, where do you live? To abide is to stay in a place that becomes home. To remain a place in which life or living in all its fullness becomes possible. Where we stay is where we live. Where we live, where we become truly alive, this passage suggests, is where we are to stay. So it doesn't matter where you grew up. There's a sense of home about this passage and the words used. But when I was checking out the origins of the word abide, the internet, which can be a blessing and a curse, reminded me that in contemporary parlance, abide can also mean put up with or tolerate perhaps not quite such a positive definition. And yet, I guess it's one that's true within any family or any community, and especially in the kind of broad church that's right in you and that we aspire to be. But it has to be more, surely, than just putting up with each other. Tolerating is never going to be enough, as the writer is very keen to remind the readers. The ancient Shema prayer of the Jewish people and the new commandment that Jesus gave his followers are one and the same. And they lead us to the second essential word in this letter, which is love. Love God, love your neighbour, love yourself. Endless sermons have been preached on these words. We know them inside out and back to front, and yet they still continue to be a challenge to us. In this early church movement of little house churches in and around Ephesus, love wasn't always easy. To be a follower of Jesus was risky and demanding. And in this community anyway, you were expected to receive as brothers and sisters in Christ people whose background and theology was very different from your own. Some of them might have come from another country, been a different nationality. Some of them at least came from a different town or city. Some of them had an incredibly high Christology and others one that was equally low. Some of them would have got on together quite well naturally and some of them would have rubbed each other up the wrong way from day one. Tolerating each other was never going to be enough. They needed to love each other and that was hard work.
The words from John's Gospel, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends, are hugely challenging. To love each other enough that we gladly give up seeking our own desires, asserting our rights, demanding our status or our way or whatever it is, is really challenging. Anything that's about me over against you is not a loving way forwards. But love one another is a sign of true discipleship. It doesn't mean warm, fuzzy feelings, but they are permitted if they happen along the way. And we're not asked to love those who it's easy to like. We're told to love the person who winds you up. To love the person whose theology you actively disagree with. To love the person whose lifestyle troubles you. To love the person whose values you perhaps don't share. To love like that can be hard work. And to love is to risk rejection or ridicule. It can cost us very dearly emotionally and practically and spiritually but it's intimately and intricately linked with the reality of staying put, of remaining or abiding. So we're to stay and we're to love. The third word, which occurs several times at the start of the second letter of John, is truth. And it's one of those words that Christians tie themselves in all kinds of knots about, arguing about what it refers to or what it is its content. The thing is, with all scripture, translators have to make imp- interpretive decisions about which word and phrase to use when things are a little bit ambiguous in the Greek or the Hebrew. And it's not going to surprise you when I tell you that this little text is no exception. Whilst the phrase, the truth, occurs twice, the less precise truth, or possibly truly, arises three times, though that doesn't often appear in our translation. And I think that's significant because it seems to me that truly is about an attitude rather than a specific doctrinal belief, or in fact even rather than a demonstrable fact. Commentators agree that it would be legitimate to translate the opening sentence of the letter as being addressed to those whom the elder truly loves. Dear elect sister and her children, who I truly love, I love you truly, I love you a lot, rather than those who are loved because you hold on to the truth. Although it does then go to add on to say that this love is shared, you do know the truth, because the truth remains, abides, lives, dwells among us. The benediction in verse 3 could be read as being offered truly and in love, rather than truth and love. Whilst those of whom the writer is aware and rejoices are those who could be described as walking truly, rather than simply walking in the truth. To walk truly according to the commands received from the Father, i.e. God. Maybe it's just semantics, and giving my very limited Greek, it could be pure fancy on my part. 
I find it really attractive that the possibility is it's about a depth and quality of life and belief that is alluded to here, rather than a narrow set of doctrinal statements. And if the hypothesis of wider and more learned people than I is correct, that this was a broad church, then to walk truly seems to make a lot more sense than to try and say to walk in the truth. And of course, you can legitimately ask, well, what does it mean to walk truly or to walk in the truth? And the answer in the letter and within the gospel is that to do so is to keep the commands of Christ, which are the commands of God, which are to love one another as God has loved us. It's one of those things that John just loves doing, is taking us round and round in circles as we discover things are interconnected, and somehow it always comes back to love. Truth and love. Love and truth. Love and truly or truthfulness are ultimately inseparable. Which shouldn't really surprise us, should it? Because God is love, and Christ is truth, and each is part of the one ultimate reality. And so, in pondering this very, very short letter, we may find ourselves as readers part of a broad church in which diverse understandings of what it means to follow Jesus not only coexist, but are affirmed and celebrated with an overarching commitment to walk truly, to stick together and to learn to love one another as God loves us. And it's those who would abandon this for a narrower, more readily defined version of the truth that the writer warns against, telling his readers in contemporary parlance, don't give them house room. Don't give house room to those who would try to change you into something you're not. I could talk about that, but time's up, so that's your homework. Go away and think about that one yourself. Life together in a broad church isn't always easy. I'm not going to pretend it is. Ministering in a broad church is far from easy, but it's wonderfully fun. The path of discipleship is strewn with hazards along the way. But we are called to be courageous, to trust in God, to stay put, to love each other, and as best as we are able to walk truly, or in the words of a rather old hymn, trust in God and do the right.
by day we find a loving God walking alongside us, as though knowing where we are going, travelling with our uncertainties and our certainties, with our questions and with our fears. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Let us pray. And let us reflect on this past week. Call to mind in a moment when you, when I, experienced the love of God through the actions of another. Perhaps call to mind when we were able to help or support or encourage another. And in that moment, becoming as Jesus for another. We might also call to mind when we missed such an opportunity and we know it we give thanks for the moments when we catch glimpses of the presence of God's love in others and in ourselves when in a moment of insight we grasp the outrageous and overwhelming truth of a love so deep and so wide that it shocks and jolts our trivial and petty preoccupations. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. And so we pray for our world this morning, perhaps asking, how is God walking with those in all their diverse circumstances. Perhaps also asking, through whom is God walking? And what am I doing? How do I lay down the needs of myself in order to help others? How do we, how do you, How do I do that in this group that we call Hillhead Baptist Church? How do we do it amongst our friends and in our family? How do we do it in our neighbourhood and our city? How do we do it in our country? And how do we do it for those far away who we do not know, but who are daily affected by our own decisions, our votes, what we choose to buy, what we choose to support in terms of charitable giving, what we choose to inform ourselves about and be interested in?
And it's in this context that we pray again for ourselves that we may live the love of God in us and through others. That we may live that love in solidarity with the powerless. And that in living that love we may embrace our experience but transcend our prejudices. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. The God who in the stories of scripture led his people by the hand still calls us to follow and to love one another. The God who in love walked the road to wood and nails still calls us to serve, to love one another, and to turn our prayers into action. And as part of that action, we continue in the giving of an offering. God, who is love, and who welcomes and receives us in love. In our love, we offer these gifts of money, as we have offered our prayers, and as we continue to offer ourselves to express that love in this community and throughout the wider world. Amen. Love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down.
we stand if we are able to sing our closing hymn together. and peace from God the Father, from Jesus the Son, and from the Holy Spirit the Comforter be truly ours now and always. Amen.